Decades of research have been dedicated to isolating and refining a vaccine for adult shingles. Finally approved in 2006 and in use today, what are some of the lessons we can take from this research? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School. Our guests today are Dr. William Schaffner, Professor and Chair of Preventive Medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and Vice President of the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases, and Dr. Michael Oxman, Professor of Medicine and Pathology at the University of California San Diego School of Medicine. Dr. Oxman is also National Chair of the Shingles Prevention Study. Dr. Schaffner and Dr. Oxman, welcome. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Hi, Mark. Good to be with you. Today we are discussing the history of research into the vaccines for shingles. Gentlemen, can you give us a brief review of what is shingles, what causes it, and what's it like if you get it? Well, this is Mike Oxman. I can uh, give it the first shot. Shingles is a painful, blistering rash that normally appears in one area on one side of the body, usually on the torso or face. It's caused by the same virus that causes chickenpox, the varicella zoster virus. When we get chickenpox, it's our first experience with a virus. And you acquire the virus by inhalation. It replicates in the lymphoid system. After about 10 days, uh, begins to cause a viremia, which disseminates it to the skin, where it produces a, a disseminated rash consisting of uh, blisters that eventually become pustules and scab over and finally heal. So the first disease that you get as a virgin, if you will, is chickenpox or varicella, and that's the primary infection. But the virus doesn't go away. During the rash, or when the rash is there, the virus enters the endings of sensory nerves, travels up the nerves to the cell bodies, which are clustered in sensory ganglia on either side of the spine, and the virus goes to sleep or establishes a lifelong latent infection in the sensory neurons. Well, what makes it wake up, so to speak? Well, we're not completely sure. We do know that cell-mediated immunity to the varicella zoster virus plays a, the major role in keeping it from waking up. And then when it does wake up, usually as a result of that cell-mediated immunity falling below some critical level, the virus replicates in nerve cells again in the ganglia, producing cell death and necrosis. And then after several days, comes back down the nerve to the skin where it started. But since, unlike chickenpox, the virus has awakened from dormancy in a single ganglion, it comes down nerves just from that ganglion and causes a rash that's like chickenpox, except that it's restricted to the area of the skin innervated by that ganglion, which is a dermatome. So it's on one side of the body, uh, beginning in the midline uh, in the front and going all the way around to the midline in the back. Now, do patients have to be clinically immunocompromised for them to get shingles? No, not at all. When we were in medical school, we were told that if somebody gets shingles, they must have some immunosuppressive disease like lymphoma. But we now know that perfectly normal people get shingles. In fact, children get shingles. Well, how common is shingles? Well, the risk of shingles goes up as you get older. So if you live to be 85, the chances are 50-50 that you will get shingles at least once. If you're in your 60s, the risk of getting shingles is about 1 in 100 or more per year. 
Gentlemen, what is the history going back 40 years or so of finding a vaccine for this disease? In the early 1970s, a wonderful Japanese pediatrician named Michiaki Takahashi isolated the chickenpox virus from a child with chickenpox. And he then did just what all the classical virologists did in attenuating viruses like polio and measles and mumps. He passaged the virus in tissue culture, in tissue cultures of guinea pig cells and then of human cells for a number of passages. And in the process, the virus got better at growing in tissue culture and lost some of its ability to produce disease in humans. So that in the early 70s, Takahashi and his colleagues began to test the virus in children in hospital-based epidemics of chickenpox and found that by vaccinating children, he could prevent their acquisition of chickenpox. Takahashi isolated the virus and finally ended up with an attenuated virus, less capable of producing disease in people, but better at growing in tissue culture. He then introduced that for the prevention of chickenpox I think the first time in some hospital epidemics and found it was very effective. It's also a very, very attenuated virus, more so than any other live attenuated vaccine that I'm aware of, so that some of the early studies showed that it could be used in leukemic children who were in remission and off chemotherapy for six weeks or more. In these children, it was important because chickenpox in leukemic children can have a mortality as high as 10 or 15 percent. And so this virus was used to protect uh, leukemic children against chickenpox. We'd love to protect leukemic children against measles, but measles virus isn't attenuated enough, and we wouldn't dare to give it to a, a leukemic child. Back 40 years ago, did they realize that the same virus caused shingles? Yes. This has been recognized for over 100 years. First of all, on the basis of the pathology, which in the skin is indistinguishable in the lesions caused by chickenpox and the lesions caused by shingles. And then Tom Weller, a disciple of Dr. John Enders, did some of the earliest studies which indicated that the virus that was isolated from cases of chickenpox and from cases of herpes zoster was immunologically the same. But in fact, in the early part of this century, a German physician and a Scandinavian physician independently both took fluid from blisters in people with herpes zoster or shingles and inoculated children. And these children, if they had never had chickenpox, developed chickenpox and transmitted it as chickenpox to other children. If they had already had chickenpox, they didn't develop it. Obviously, we don't do studies like this these days. Is this a vaccine uh, that could be used for adults for risk of shingles? Well, when Takahashi attenuated the virus, he developed it first as a vaccine against chickenpox. And it was eventually licensed in 1995 in the United States for the prevention of chickenpox. And it's been widely used now so that there over 85% of most American children are immunized against chickenpox, and it's quite rare to see chickenpox these days in the United States. More recently, it was recognized that this attenuated virus also provides the opportunity to see if you could boost immunity to the varicella zoster virus in older adults and thereby prevent herpes zoster or shingles. And what did that show? 
largely because of the work of a wonderful British physician who died at the age of 93, someone named Edgar Hope Simpson. We thought that it was likely that we might be able to use this same live attenuated virus to boost cell-mediated immunity against the virus and thereby prevent shingles in older adults. One of the paradoxes is that Dr. Takahashi saw his new vaccine as an effective way to protect leukemic children against chickenpox, which of course can cause serious infections in uh, such immunocompromised children. The paradox was when the vaccine was brought to the United States and studied for licensure, it was actually licensed and used initially in perfectly normal children to protect them against chickenpox and was not used initially in leukemic children because it was thought perhaps to be too dangerous. So that's kind of a little paradoxical twist to a story. When a patient comes to you with shingles, do they have any sequela following their acute infection? Well, patients who come with shingles, particularly older patients, are kind of interesting because they've had pain in the area where their rash develops for several days and sometimes as long as a couple of weeks uh, before they develop the rash. And that reflects the fact that the virus wakes up from its dormancy in nerve cells and begins the process of causing shingles by growing and replicating in the nerve cells, spreading from cell to cell, and actually causing hemorrhagic necrosis in in the sensory ganglion before it comes down the nerve to the skin and causes a classical rash, the classical dermatomal blistering rash of shingles. Now, prior to the development of the rash, diagnosing that unilateral pain is very difficult. And in fact, I like to say that only God can diagnose shingles in advance of the, of the rash. Once the rash appears, it's usually fairly obvious. But the patient, by the time the rash appears, has already had usually days of pain and had serious damage caused to the sensory ganglion and nerves. Is this permanent damage? Some of it is. Now, using antiviral therapy, and there are three drugs, there's acyclovir and famcyclovir and valacyclovir. These drugs are all capable of stopping the virus from multiplying, but they don't make dead nerve cells come back to life. So you want to use them as early as you can. Used when people present with their rash of shingles, these antiviral drugs can shorten the course of shingles and hasten healing by about 30%. So with these irreversible effects until you start treatment, was this the impetus to come up with a efficacious adult vaccine? Yes. What we observed when we first began to have in our armamentarium the antiviral drugs that stopped the virus from multiplying was that even when we gave them early, a number of people still continued on to have chronic pain that persisted for weeks or months or even years after their rash had healed. And this is a a very debilitating syndrome called post-herpetic neuralgia. And what we were disappointed to observe is that even initiating therapy early on, shortly after the rash begins, you still have people who progress to develop post-herpetic neuralgia probably because a great deal of irreversible damage has been done before the rash, and in many patients, the horse is out of the barn before you can initiate therapy. And this is Schaffner. This post-herpetic neuralgia or post-shingles pain can be, for some people, extremely 
extraordinarily debilitating and life-altering. Minor stimuli on the trunk, such as brushing the skin with a shirt, can trigger this pain. This makes some people stay home and be reclusive, not wishing to wear clothes that may stimulate this. It interferes with their eating. It can make them depressed. There have been patients, this is not that unusual, who have suicidal ideation because the pain is so persistent and life-altering. So part of the motivation for the development of the vaccine was not only to prevent the initial shingles episode, but also to prevent this sequela, the post-shingles pain, post-herpetic neuralgia. I want to thank our guests, Dr. William Schaffner and Dr. Michael Oxman. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill. And you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. And thank you for listening.